Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I will, I will be reading in French, and the English text should be on the screen as I read. Puis l'Éternel dit à Noé, entre dans le bateau, toi et toute ta famille, car je ne vois que toi qui sois juste parmi tes contemporains. Prends sept couples des animaux purs, sept mâles et sept femelles, et un couple de tous les animaux qui ne sont pas purs, le mâle et sa femelle. Prends aussi sept couples de chaque espèce d'oiseau pour perpétuer la race sur toute la terre. Quand dans ces sept jours, je vais faire pleuvoir sur la terre durant quarante jours et quarante nuits, et je fassera de la surface de la terre tous les êtres que j'ai créés. Noé fit tout ce qui l'Éternel lui dit avec Adoné. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, that was my fault. I didn't have my mute off. That's my, that was my problem. What's happening over here is that the kids are being dismissed for children's church, so a reminder to parents to pick them up right before or after you take uh, communion. If you're visiting uh, this morning, my name is Brian. I'm the, uh, the lead pastor here at Trinity. And one of the things you uh, might have noted is the uh, scripture reading was in a different language. And we do that from time to time as a way in our liturgy to remind us about the global nature of the Christian faith, that the gospel is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. And it's just a small way that we remind ourselves about that uh, in our liturgy. Um, one thing to highlight something that, that Maureen also mentioned in the call to worship is our annual celebration will be coming up at the end of this month on a Saturday. I encourage you to go. We're going to have some food there uh, to, to share with one another and highlight uh, things from last year and also some things uh, looking ahead. We're going to vote on some new church leaders uh, that will be voted on by members uh, into their offices. We'll also give some updates on some staff uh, transitions and staffing. There's, you'll notice in the, the Sunday handout that we're looking for an associate pastor and uh, director of music. Many of you have already heard that uh, Josiah will be moving to Denmark this spring or summer, so we'll give some updates on that. Um, and highlight some more things from the assessment that we took at the end of last year and how we're seeking to implement uh, some of that. And if you're listening to some of those announcements about what we're going to talk about at the annual celebration, you're like, man, I just got blindsided about some stuff. I never even heard some of these news before. You are precisely the person that should go to the annual celebration to get in the loop about some of these things and just be brought up to speed. So I would really encourage you uh, to, to come and to celebrate with us. Well, we're going through the book of Genesis uh, as a church, and uh, we are uh, still in the first kind of 12 uh, chapters of Genesis, which is this, this story of ancient history and that God is the God of all, all of the earth. And today we are going to be looking at the story, the three chapters about the flood in the book of Genesis. But before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. 
Lord, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for the work of your spirit that is uh, in their life. Their presence here is a testimony that you are at work, that you're giving faith, and that you're bringing people to your son, Jesus Christ, to consider again his death and resurrection, his continued rule over all creation, and the hope that we have, Lord, that you will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. We believe that, Lord, because of your word, because of the, the promises there, because of the hope that we see in your promises, the covenant, uh, the commitment that you make to your people. Help us to see all that again and to be transformed by it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many of us grew up hearing the story about Noah and the flood, and it's uh, common if you grow up hearing that story to get to a point that you think about it in a little bit more depth, and you are struck by something that might not uh, come out in detail in Sunday school classes or maybe in a uh, children's storybook Bible or something like that, because it's often presented, right, this story about the flood as this kind of cute thing. You can, I, my kids uh, throughout the years have like toys uh, with the, the ark and Noah and like the little animals that you can put up on it. I remember back in the day I bought my parents a uh, picture of the ark and just loaded up on the top with a bunch of animals and people and they're just like, it looks like more like a cruise ship and they're having a good time, right? And there's that type of, type of vibe. You do children's curriculum in Sunday school and it's just these adorable pictures that looks like a cartoon. But then if you start to really think about the story, you start to get a little disturbed maybe because you think about what's going on underneath that water, right? behind the cute picture and the, the, the diagrams or whatever, the curriculum, there is a whole lot of death going on. I've never seen one piece of artwork, for example, that has like a floating body, right, by the ark, because, because that would probably not sell as much. Uh, maybe you'd have to put like a, a rating. This is a rated R piece of artwork. But that's the reality that some of us start to get to. We are very familiar with this story, but maybe uh, don't uh, maybe realize that it's also about God's judgment and start to think about why did something like this happen? Why was it so comprehensive? Why everybody but this family? Well, now we want to get into this uh, story as a church today uh, through all those chapters that the, the flood narrative is, is told in the book of Genesis. So we're going to consider the story. We're going to consider why it happened, what happened, and how it all points to Jesus Christ. So let's start uh, with Genesis 6 uh, and chapter 5, or uh, verse 5 rather, Genesis 6, 5. And to set up this verse, what's happened before this is that there's the first sin in the Garden of Eden, uh, chapter 3, and sin has been since then spreading everywhere, spreading to the degree that there's murder, there's people like developing vengeances on other people and going after them unjustly, and there's this constant crossing of God's divine boundaries by his people. And then you get to Genesis 6-5, and it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Isn't that an intense way to describe it? Every inclination 
of the human heart was only evil all the time, only and all of the time. You get to verse 11 to 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. This is describing the, how comprehensive the evil has gotten in God's world. The human heart was only evil all the time, it says. The earth was filled with violence, and everyone on earth, everyone, had corrupted their ways. And God responds, look at verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. This word regret, that's a vivid word to use about God, because this is something we relate to as Human beings, we regret things. Sometimes this word can even be translated as repent in the scriptures, that you change your mind, you change your direction, you change your approach. And this raises all kinds of theological questions because Christians uh, uh, traditionally believe that God is immutable, which is a term that means that he's unchanging. He is who he is, and he will always be that way. So if you have an immutable, unchanging God, how can he regret anything. Similar language is used uh, in, in uh, other ports, parts of the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 15, for example, it says that God also regretted there. He regretted making this guy Saul king. And the text says a couple times that God regretted that he made Saul as king. And yet in that same chapter, in verse 29, it says this, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So in Scripture, at least for the biblical writers, there's no contradiction in saying that God regrets something and his immutability, his unchangingness. That, because that's, that verse is describing that's who God is. He doesn't change his mind like a human being. But that same chapter says that God regretted making Saul king. So how do theologians understand what's happening when God regrets something? You see, God's character is eternally unchanging, yet he also responds to changing human beings. God's very good world here in the context of Genesis, again, has been changed by the violence of human beings. So the scriptures describe God's response to such comprehensive evil in a way that shows that he deeply cares. He's about to change his approach to human beings because his heart the text said, was deeply troubled. He looks out on the earth and sees that it's soaked with the blood of injustice, and he's about to now do something about it. He's going to wipe it clean with a flood, and all humanity and any animal that dwells on the earth will be submerged under that flood. And I think before I move on, it's worth pausing here and remembering that we worship and, ha and, and what has been revealed to us as a people is that this is a God of justice. God's justice is a reality of who he is. God is both love, but God is also righteous. He deeply cares about the very good world he created and all the people that are made in his image. 
But when human beings do all kinds of evil and wickedness to one another and to the world around them, they are showing how they feel not only towards one another, but also towards God. They're going after God's image because everybody's made in God's image, and they're going after God's image with violence and injustice and with the very hatred of God himself that they're carrying around in their heart. Genesis 9-6 puts it this way, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans there shall their blood be shed. For, this is the reason why this type of justice happens, for in the image of God has God made mankind. They bear his image, but yet they are slaughtering one another, and the earth is soaked with this injustice. And how does a God of love respond in a situation like this? And it would be the most unloving thing to do to let it keep happening, to let injustice keep happening, violence and evil and hatred. It would be the most unloving thing for him to do is to not care. But he's deeply troubled in his heart. He does care, and God is about to respond. And how does he respond? Well, he responds with justice and judgment, but does he respond in such a way that, like, just everything's gone and human beings are just done with. No, there's hope. There is not a complete end to every human being and all living things that live on the land because, because in Scripture, it's interesting, when God's justice and judgment shows up, so does his mercy, so does his grace. And he looks out on the world and one man and his family find favor in God's eyes. And the story of the flood is also a story about this man named Noah. In Genesis 6-9, the text says this about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So Noah is different than the rest of mankind. He follows God's way of love and life. He loves others, acts justly towards those around him. The text says that he walked faithfully with God. Remember that language of walked came up in earlier chapters of Genesis, in the garden, when it talks about the intimacy that human beings have with God when they walk with him in the garden. Here you have Noah walking with God. He's not a person that hides from God but walks with God, as one does with a close friend. And the book of Hebrews reminds us in the New Testament that Noah is a man of faith, and so his righteous life flows out of a relationship that he has with the Lord. But now God has a new command for Noah. Build a large boat. Well, an ark, to be specific. God tells Noah a bunch of details about how to do this. He talks about the type of wood to use, how long and high and wide this ark is supposed to be, and that it's going to be made with rooms and roof and a door and actually multiple doors. And if you read the description in verses 14 through 16, one of the things that you should be struck by is that this is not nearly enough detail to actually build this thing, right? If I got these instructions and this was the blueprint, nothing would get done, right? It's just like, what kind of tools am I supposed to use? Is there a planer for some of this wood? Am I supposed to put some type of, like, poly on that? Like, what's, like, what else do I do? Like, Lord, can you, like, reach the future? Give me a power tool? Like, there's just, there's just not enough detail here. But that's not the point. I mean, surely in the historical moment, Noah probably got more details on the blueprint of building this. 
but that's giving these details uh, intentionally because the scriptures want us to think about something when we think about this boat. A lot of people really get stuck on how big is this thing. And one study Bible summarizes the size of the ark would have been about 400 feet, 450 feet long and 70 feet wide and 45 feet high, which would be longer than a football field and taller than any home that you'd find in St. Paul. It would say that its displacement yield would be about 43,000 tons with a total inside capacity of about 1.4 million cubic feet. So if you're into those kind of details, that might be what it would have been in terms of the size. But let me simplify those details a little bit more. The shape of this arc is a rectangular shape with three sections or decks on it, right? And then the details, again, that we're given about it, it highlights the materials that are being used and the dimensions. Now, if you read that description in Genesis alongside of the instructions to build the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31, things start to stick out a little bit because in the description of the tabernacle, you have similar emphasis on what kind of materials to use, the size, and it emphasizes the tabernacle like God's temple as well is this place that has three sections to it that's shaped like kind of a rectangle. So this is one of those things that, that I've, I've known about this story, uh, like many of, you, many of you have, especially if you grew up going to church for a long time, and I have never seen this before. We, we, uh, Maureen talked about call to worship and having an epiphany. I love when this happens with Scripture. This is just so amazing how you can study Scripture and read a story and see it again and again and again, and then all of a sudden, because you just have a life of reading Scripture, you start to see these connections that happen, and this connection just lit me up in the study this, this, this week, just thinking about what the ark is. Why these details? This is a floating sanctuary. This is the place where God is going to protect and preserve life in this place. This is a sanctuary boat, much like a tabernacle or a temple. And it's how God's presence is going to save humanity from his judgment, as well as save all that is needed for the, dry, the animals on this dry land to replenish the earth. In fact, God makes a covenant or a promise to Noah and everything else on this sanctuary boat that they will be kept alive. This is an important category because later in this story, God moves from this regret to remembering this promise. And the story repeats more than once that when God gave Noah these instructions, that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And that's, that's an interesting thing to think about, right? Because it's not like he's building this boat in a dockyard and it's about to be pushed into the sea. It'd be the equivalent of somebody building something like this in this neighborhood, which, if you know this neighborhood too, it's, it's even above, like it's kind of like, like this hill, and even, even the Mississippi River would get really, really high to start to flood this neighborhood. And you have to think about Noah building this place, this boat, in the middle of nowhere, and just think about like what people thought of him while he was doing this crazy thing, but he was doing it, and he was driven by, God told me to do this. He told me to do this, and he told me what's coming, and so he committed to following God's command. 
Now we start to go into the part of the, the story where the flood comes. Noah and his family, including his sons and their wives, enter the ark along with pairs of animals of every kind from the earth. Genesis 7.16 says, The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Since the earth is about to be cleansed, this sanctuary boat is protecting the life that will, be, that will be used to replenish the earth. And then notice, did you see this detail? Who shut the door? God shut the door and, and shuts them into the ark. And that's showing God's provision and protection of those that are on board. And then the flood comes. Chapter 7, verse 11. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Going on to verse 17, it says, For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. So that's a description of the flood uh, covering everything, including the mountains, that the mountains were underneath the water. We have a comprehensive flood that covers all land and drowns all life. And how comprehensive is this flood? This is a question that people of faith often wrestle with. If it's really global, then how did every single species of animals get packed onto this boat? Now, certainly the scriptures often use universal language in different ways, and here it's being used to describe the impact of the flood uh, to make it clear that nothing outside of this boat survived. However, people of faith both believe in a global flood and also, others have believed throughout church history that it covered the entire region where human beings are dwelling because at this point, remember, this is very early history. It's not that human beings have populated the entire world. They have settled in a specific area. So from that perspective and from their perspective, everything was covered by a flood, but maybe more regionally than globally. It's important to know as Christians that we can wrestle with these things and have different positions, maybe even change your position, and still be a faithful biblical Christian. But I don't want to focus so much on this question as I do what is the theology of what is being communicated by this flood. I want to focus on more of a theological point that's being made. And let's look at that by starting with chapter 7, verse 22, where it says, Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The, flood, the, wa the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. What would that have felt like? What would that have looked like? And I think the biblical authors wants you, to remind, wants you to remember a description that he had back in the earliest chapter of Genesis, and that is Genesis 1-2. Remember what that said? 
Genesis 1-2 describes this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then what happens next? Creation. Things start to happen. Life starts to appear. And so with this comprehensive flood that's happening, God is providing a, a start over with creation. It's a hard reset. Theologians use this word that he's decreating with the flood and bringing it back to this state that was described in Genesis 1-2 where God is hovering over the deep, this formless deep, because God is about to do something new. God is starting over. And in Genesis 8-1, the text says, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind. See, that the wind of God, a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Do you see that common language that's happening here in the text? God has decreated, but what happens next? He is about to recreate the world. The waters start to recede until the ark rests on the top of the mountain. This is how the story starts to unfold. God, or Noah rather, opens a window and sends out a dove in order to see if the water has receded enough to exit the ark. Eventually, the dove brings back uh, an olive leaf, and then eventually the dove doesn't come back because he finds a place to dwell, a place to hang out. And then check out what happens next. And just just observe how close this language is to Genesis 1. Genesis 9, 13, and 14 both describe that the water had dried up. Genesis 8, 19 says all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land came out of the ark, one kind after the other. And then Noah and his family come out of the ark. He offers a sacrifice to God, and then Genesis 9, 1 says... Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This is the exact same language that you find in Genesis 1, when God makes the land by, by drying it up and separating it from the water, and then he puts on the land all the animals and creatures that move along the ground, and everything that was in the ark comes out to do exactly that. And Noah and his family come out as well, human beings made in his image, and they're given the same command to be fruitful and increase the number and fill the earth. And that's what God is doing. God has decreated, but then he remembered his commitment to his people and to this world, and now he is recreating. And the creation language is what's being used to describe this new creation, because God has remembered. God continues to remember in chapter 9 of Genesis, when he remembers this covenant and establishes this covenant with Noah and gives a sign of the covenant. Let's look at those verses together, 11 through 17. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. 
Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whoever, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. See, here Noah is like a new Adam for this new creation, and God remembers and makes a covenant with Noah and all creation. He will never again destroy the earth with a flood. And like all covenants throughout Scripture, God gives a covenant sign. We do this nowadays, but probably the closest similarity to having a covenant sign in the modern world is when marriage happens and a ring is offered as a sign of the covenant, the commitment that somebody makes and the promises that they make. So when you look at that sign, you remember the promises that are made. Here, it's not a ring, but a rainbow that's attached to the promises that God will never destroy the world again with a flood. He's committing to it. And God is going to commit to bringing life in the world and renewing the world and redeeming the world. Now, unfortunately, things don't get better with Noah. Things start to get worse again. As we'll see next week in the, in the chapters that follow, Noah, what does he do when he gets off the boat? He gets drunk. He gets drunk, he gets naked, and shames his family. We'll get into the details next week, all right? But that's what's coming, all right? Things don't get better with this reset. Things also deteriorate all the way to the point that the Tower of Babel is being built. Almost like testing God. Are you going to stay committed to your covenant? Because things got real bad again. And as we know, he does. He commits and recommits and calls new people forth from the world and establishes promises and a plan of redemption uh, through them because he is committed to this project of renewal. But one of Noah's descendants is different. Jesus is the true and better Noah. He is the one that truly ushers in a new creation. He makes us new and into a new creation through his death and resurrection. And how does he do this? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus says this, But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. What's Jesus talking about here? What's the baptism? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus responds to a request from his disciples about becoming essentially the CEO and CFO of his heavenly kingdom, and he responds to their conversation uh, about that with these words in Mark 10, 38. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? That language is coming out again. In the context of both, this baptism or this cup that he's going to drink is the judgment of God against sin and death. So here we see that Jesus in the gospel, in his death and resurrection, is submerged under the waters of God's judgment in order that we might be saved from it. Jesus in the gospel becomes the true and better sanctuary who protects and preserves us from the flood of God's judgment. Jesus is also the true and better Noah, 
who doesn't get drunk in unrighteousness, but rather drinks the cup of judgment so that we might have his righteousness. And now when we look to the Christ, who is our everlasting covenant, we were reminded of who he is and his promises. Jesus is the one that Ezekiel saw in the throne room of God when he saw a figure like a man. And then he says this in chapter 1, verse 24, Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The Apostle John also saw this rainbow too in Revelation 4.3. In the throne room of God, where also the Lamb of God dwells, where the Father and His Son reign forever, because Christ is also the true and better sign of an everlasting covenant that offers eternal life to all who see it and believe it and remember it. That is the good news of the flood story today, brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen.